0: If you love animals, maybe it's uh, laboratory testing on animals. Uh, If you love integrity, uh, maybe it's politicians' election promises, which they subsequently don't keep. Uh, If you love your national soccer team, maybe it's bad refereeing decisions. If you remember, in the 2006 Soccer World Cup group stage match between Australia and Croatia, the referee, Graham Poll, a palm I'm afraid, uh, failed to send off the Croatian left back despite booking him twice. Uh, he was finally given a third booking and deser- a deserved red card for descent after the match had finished. Now as you can imagine, uh, this left many Australians seething. Maybe you can feel the ire rising in you even as I speak. Uh, fortunately, the 2-2 draw meant Australia did still progress to the next stage. But what are you passionate about? What gets you steamed up? Whatever we love will cause us to be provoked when it is threatened. As we follow the exploits of the Apostle Paul, we get an insight into what he was passionate about. We get an insight into his heart. And what do we see? He had a passion. He had a great love for God and for God's glory. And we're going to see that this carries challenges for all Christians of every era. But first, uh, let's step back and remind ourselves of the context of what we're looking at this morning. Uh, Paul's on his second missionary journey, uh, taking the good news of Jesus out into the Gentile world. Uh, In previous weeks, we've seen that his reach is extending to the territories far beyond his first journey. Uh, God has guided Paul and his team into what is now, as you can see on the map, uh, modern day, Turkey, uh, modern-day Europe. Uh, And wherever they proclaim the gospel, they encounter opposition, at first at Philippi, causing them then to move on to Thessalonica and to Berea. But their opponents pursue them there as well. So now, uh, rather than waiting for further civil unrest, uh, the team splits. Uh, Timothy and Silas remain in Berea, but Paul leaves, and he travels the 500 kilometers (coughs) By boat, mostly, to the great city of Athens. And he's going to wait there until Timothy and Silas can join him. So, there he is. The great Apostle Paul, alone, amidst the glories of ancient Greece. Athens, it was an amazing city. It was the cultural and intellectual capital of the then-known world. Had this incredible, uh, rich, philosophical tradition... If you remember, uh, the great uh, philosophers of Socrates, Plato and Aristotle, they were all there in Athens in their day. Uh, The Athens universities only took the highest ranking ATAR students. It was a place of great intellectual pride. Uh, It was also a place of great culture. Uh, They had great coffee there. Uh, They had great architecture. They had innumerous, innumerous statues and shrines and altars and temples, including the Acropolis and the Parthenon and it was a place of art and literature and learning. It was the Sydney of the ancient world. What was Paul's reaction? What was Paul's reaction as he waited for the arrival of his team? What would have been yours? Uh, would you have happily spent your time perusing the city as a sightseer, taking in the glories? Well, Paul had no eye for the architecture. Paul had no fascination for the food. Paul was not captivated by the culture. Instead, he was upset. He was deeply upset. He was provoked by its spiritual darkness and its idolatry. Look at verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols. Uh, the, the word used in the NIV, uh, tr- as translated as distressed, is also translated accurately as provoked in other translations. And that is the same word that is used to describe God's response to idolatry throughout the Old Testament. Uh, Judges chapter 2, verse 12 is one example. Speaking of the Israelites, uh, they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They provoked the Lord to anger. Idolatry. Idolatry provokes God. Idolatry stirs up God's emotions. Think about it. God has made us. He has given us all that we have. What do we owe Him? We owe Him our love, we owe Him our gratitude, we owe Him our devotion and yet what do we do when we worship false gods? We give that love, worship and devotion to another. You know of course how the Bible describes that, adultery, spiritual (coughs) adultery. And therefore, idolatry evokes within God the same sense of betrayal as someone whose spouse is having an affair. And therefore, God's feelings of jealousy and anger, you can see, can't you? They're appropriate, they're right. It is a righteous anger and jealousy for his name and honor. So, coming back to Paul, uh, when he sees the idolatry of the city, do you see what's happening? he is having the same emotional response as God. Like David, Paul is a man after God's own heart and his heart resonates with God's. You see, he's been deeply touched by God's love and as a result, he is jealous. He's jealous for God's name and for God's honour. And he's cut to the heart by this rank unfaithfulness of these people to their one true God, and king. He's in deep anguish at the tragedy of these people's plight. Think about it. Here are these people pouring out their hopes and their passions and basing it on inanimate objects that can't give them eternal life. How tragic. And also, through doing that, they place themselves under the wrath and the condemnation of the one true God. Of course, we know, don't we, Uh, sadly, uh, idolatry is alive and it's well in our world today. And we know, don't we, We, uh, idolatry, it's much wider than just bowing down to physical statues and figurines. Uh, Of course, an idol is something that is of such central importance in a person's life that they worship it as they should God. They're not necessarily bad things, but rather they are good things that have become ultimate things. Uh, Tim Keller, of course, has written a lot on this subject uh, and has some very helpful insights. Let me quote from him. He says this, Our idols are those things that we count on to give our lives meaning. They are the things of which we say, I need this to make me happy, or If I don't have this, my life is worthless and meaningless. Idolatry can take many forms. Uh, It can be the worship of work. It can be the worship of money. The worship of relationships, the worship of food. And behind these idols, of course, are other idols. The worship of security, the worship of control, the worship of self image. So, idolatry. We can see, can't we? It's everywhere in our world today. How does that make you feel? How does it make you feel? What happens in your heart when you see idolatry in our world today? Do you share something of God's emotional response to the offense of idolatry as Paul did That is how Paul felt. But what did he then do? His passion for God meant the idolatry provoked him. And that provocation then led to proclamation. You see, his love for God meant he had this deep desire for God's name to be honored and for others to also be enveloped by God's love. So what does he do? He goes out. He engages with people. He shares the good news of Jesus to anybody who will listen to him. Firstly, he goes to the synagogue and he reasons with the people there. Then he goes to what is called the marketplace. In other words, the public space. And then he reasons with people there. Do you see? Is it all about, it's driven by his passion. The passion of his heart. The passion of his heart for God drives them out into the public space to proclaim the gospel. Uh, Now, you may say to me, uh, are Christians today, are we called to follow Paul's example? Uh, Are we supposed to stand on the sidewalk in George Street in the city uh, proclaiming the resurrection of Christ? Uh, No, it doesn't work like that. Uh, We are not, of course, all gifted to be public communicators like Paul. But there is an underlying principle which carries through to Christians of all eras. If we understand the gospel, and if we live consistently with it, the gospel will not stay in our private world. It will find expression in the public life. In other words, we won't remain silent. In different ways, we will engage with people out there. We will be driven by a passion for their good and for God's glory. Hence, if we trust in Christ here today, we each needs to ask ourselves this question: What will that look like for me? What will that look like for me? How will I be driven from my love for God to proclaim the gospel to others? At the Eat with a neighbour initiative uh, that is just one example. And one expression of this principle, but it has many other outworkings in our lives. So, back to Paul. Uh, So he goes out. Uh, He proclaims the gospel in the public space. Uh, On the first surface of it, um, his engagement with the locals is not very encouraging. Uh, They can't even make sense of what on earth he's on about. They say, he's a babbler. Look at verse 18. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So on the face of it, not very encouraging, but under God's hand... He gets a ticket to the big game. He is invited to the Areopagus. Uh, This was the city's council. Uh, This was the the body that regulated the life of the city. Uh, These were the guardians of the city's religious and moral uh, education. They were the top intellectuals of the day, the brightest buttons in the pack. And Paul gets an invitation to go and proclaim the gospel to them. And it's only then, when we see what he says to them, that we start to understand the passion and the provocation of Paul's heart. And it's a fascinating message just to drill down into and to ponder on together. Uh, he's very wise. Uh, he doesn't open by hosing them down with a, like a verbal machine gun fire about their depraved idolatry. He doesn't do that. Rather, what he does is he seeks to establish some common ground. Uh, he's courteous. He says, hey, I can see you're very religious. But he also picks up on their own self-professed ignorance concerning the unknown God. And that's his way in. Verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus, and he said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship... I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Now that that you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. That's what he does. Uh, He's established this theme and now he proceeds to tell them about the true God, the God that they do not yet know. And in so doing, he skillfully and wonderfully exposes the perversity and the peril of their idolatry. And he does it in three ways, which we're going to unpack. Uh, Firstly, he shows that idolatry, it misrepresents what the one true God is like. Uh, Secondly, idolatry usurps what the one true God deserves. And thirdly, idolatry leaves people condemned at the one true God's judgment. So firstly, their idolatry, it misrepresents what the one true God is like. It has this sort of skewed upside down logic which totally inverts reality. Uh, The city, it's full of temples to their gods, but verse 24, uh, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth it does not live in temples built by hands. Do you see his point? We've not created God's living space. Actually, he's created ours. Now he goes on. They offer food to their gods, but verse 25. He, that is God, is not served by human hands, as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything. Do you see his point? God is not dependent on us. Actually, it's the other way around. We are dependent on him. He continues. The statues, they represent their gods. But, verse 28, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone an image made by man's design and skill. You see his point? God is not made in our image. Actually, we are made in his image. It's an interesting critique, isn't it, of the, the sinful human heart. It's an interesting critique of this uh, sinful tendency that humans have to, firstly, uh, minimize God and to maximize ourselves to shrink God down and to inflate ourselves up, to place ourselves at the center of the universe and to have God orbit around us. You can see the attraction of that, can't you? It's all about control. It's all about control. The reason we create idols is that we want to control our lives. Now, firstly... As Romans 1 says, we resist God's call on our lives. Romans 1 verse 21. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him. And Romans continues in chapter 1 to reveal our strategy for control. We take the created things and we set our hearts on them and we build our lives around them. Verse 25. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they worshipped and served, created things rather than the creator. Do you see what it's doing? It's this total inversion of reality. Instead of humbly acknowledging that God has created us and he rules us, we do the opposite. We presume to imagine that we can recreate God and we can rule him. How do you think the one true God feels about that offended rightly indignant how offensive of us to treat the one true God in such a way so moving on to Paul's address not only does idolatry misrepresent what the one true God is like secondly it usurps what the one true God deserves there is only one person who deserves worship and honor and glory, and that is the one true God. The one true God of verse 24. He is the God who made the world and everything in it, and He is the Lord of heaven and earth. Do you see? He alone has the right to our exclusive love, to our allegiance, to our devotion, and to our gratitude. So to worship a a statue or the god of materialism or lust or power, it's to give a false god the love and devotion which the one true God alone deserves. And it is the equivalent of having an affair. It is spiritual adultery and it's deeply offensive to God. God is rightly provoked by it and he responds with jealous anger. And justice demands that this wrong be put right. And that's exactly which God will one day do. Because thirdly, idolatry leaves people condemned on the day of the one true God's judgment. Verse 30. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he, has, he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed and he has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead you see the point ultimately idolatry is not excusable ultimately it's culpable there will be an accounting Paul brings out three clear facts about God's judgment it's universal it's righteous and it's definite firstly It's universal. All people everywhere need to repent because all will stand before God on the final judgment day. Uh, Secondly, it's righteous. He will judge the world with justice. Uh, What does political correctness say to us today in our multicultural society? It says, if somebody worships another God, we have no right to persuade them otherwise. But what does the Bible do? The Bible pushes us beyond political correctness. It says we not only have the right, but we have a loving duty if we are at all concerned for God's glory and for people's eternal destiny. And therefore, in the present, God sends us out. God sends Christians out into the world to call people everywhere to repent and to turn to Christ. And thirdly, Uh, God's judgment is definite. Uh, There is no question that it will happen. God has already set the day on his calendar. Uh, Do you remember when the uh, end of the previous millennium was approaching, they had those countdown clocks. Maybe you had one on your shelf itself. Counting down the, the days and the hours and the seconds to that great moment at midnight on the 31st of December 1999 when we moved over the new millennium, the countdown millennium clock. Similarly, on God's mental peace, there is a countdown judgment clock. The day is already set and the clock has a certain number of years, days, months, hours and seconds on it. And it is counting down to that day. And that day will come. So if we love people we will hate their idolatry because we know what eternal damage it will do to them. So in conclusion, the more love we have for God and for people, the more idolatry will provoke us, the more it will leave us distressed and distraught. Idolatry is all around us. Does it distress us? Are we as concerned as we should be about God's glory and God's honour? Are we as concerned as we should be about people's eternal destiny? You see, the danger of a lack of passion for God is that it will lead to a lack of proclamation. Therefore, do we not each need to pray, "Please, Lord, make me more a person after Your own heart." Please, Lord, rekindle the fire of Your Spirit's passion within me. Please, Lord, give me a deeper passion that leads to proclamation. But it doesn't just stop there. Uh, True, idolatry is all around us, but also idolatry is within us. Does that distress you? We know, don't we? As Christians, we are a work in progress. God is working to change us. God is working to loosen the grip of our hearts on our idols. What are... (coughs) What are the idols of your hearts? What is God calling you to repent of? What are the things in your life which you hold on to too dearly that they displace God from that number one slot? Again, why not pray, Lord, please help me to see the idols of my heart as you see them. Lord, please give me a renewed sense of their offence to you. Lord, please help me to understand their destructive, futile influence on my heart and life. as we pray that, we're praying, of course, not just to be transformed, but to be used increasingly in God's good purposes as we hold out the good news more passionately to other people around us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we look into Paul's heart, we see that his heart resonated with yours. He had a deep love for you, and that indeed meant he had a deep passion for your honour and for your name. He also had a deep love for people, and he deeply desired that they turn to you, the one true God, and they not sit under your judgment, but under your blessing. Please, we pray, please stir our hearts to have a similar response to idolatry as Paul's and as yours. Help us to have a deeper love for you, which sees the true offence of idolatry in the lives of others, but also in our own lives. And therefore, give us a deeper love and passion in our hearts. Stir us up to live lives which increasingly have you at the very centre of our hearts and affections. And which live lives which bring you glory in every facet of our lives. We ask this so indeed, to your glory. In the name of our Lord and Saviour Jesus. Amen.